when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly podcast on British politics from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne, digital comic editor, and in this episode, we'll be discussing Nigel Farage's new friendship with Donald Trump and the influence of Joseph Chamberlain on today's politics. To do this, I'm delighted to be joined by Gideon Rachman, our chief foreign affairs commentator, Robert Shrimsey, who is managing editor of FT.com, Giles Wilkes, who writes for the FT's Lex column, and down the line from Brussels, our leader writer, Alan Beatty. Thank you all for joining. We'll begin with Nigel Farage, who has been visiting America again this week. Quite bizarrely, the outgoing leader of UKIP appeared on stage with the Republican presidential candidate Donald Trump to discuss the lessons of Brexit. It's hard to know whether the people in Mississippi knew who Mr Farage was or what Brexit is, but they seem to receive quite well what he had to say. So, Gideon Rackman, why was Nigel Farage there in the first place and what he got to do with the American presidential election? One of the stranger things, certainly if you're British, is the way in which the Brexit referendum has resonated in America. I mean, normally you go over to America and sometimes I've had people not even know who the prime minister was or think it's still John Major when it was Tony Blair or whatever. But Brexit, people really noticed because it seemed to chime with this idea of an anti-establishment rebellion. And Farage has now become, if you like, the standard bearer of that. Trump has caught on to this and said, even more strangely, people will soon be calling me Mr. Brexit, as if he was somehow responsible for this. But I think the kind of causation runs both ways, so that Farage, I think, is particularly hostile to Obama because of the way that Obama and the Democrats generally intervened in the British referendum. Obama, if you remember, said Britain would have to go to the back of the queue of uh, trade agreements and so on. So it became kind of personal. And then when Brexit won, it was felt as if this was a defeat, obviously, for the British establishment, but also in a way, as Trump sees it, generally for the globalist establishment, the people who are in favour of these big, highfalutin international agreements like the EU and indeed like the kind of trade agreements that he says that he's going to renege on. And finally, I think they say, on the one hand, there's the globalist establishment represented by the people who campaigned for Remain in the UK and Obama. On the other hand, there's the little guy, the little guy who's been trampled upon by these people, and he and Farage both represent that. That's the idea anyway. Well, Mr. Farage, we're looking to fill his days at the moment, Robert, because he's quit as leader of UK for the third time, I believe, and is looking for a career to take him onwards, because obviously his time as an MEP is going to come to an end as well. And he seems quite keen to develop himself as some sort of personality in America. Is he the sort of person that will appeal? Well, I'd watch him on Strictly Come Dancing. I think he meets a certain stereotype of Britishness, which I conceive could appeal. And one has to remember that whether you like Nigel Farage or not, whether you share his views or not, he is a pretty effective political campaigner. This is no longer deniable. It's also worth pointing out, I mean, I agree with everything that Gideon said on this point, that the synergies between his movement and the right-wing Republican movement, they've been running both ways for quite a long time. You know, UKIP and the Brexit parties learned a lot 
from the Tea Party. And although Donald Trump is not exactly an exemplar of the Tea Party, he's clearly the beneficiary of that upsurge. And so they've been copying each other back and forth for a while. And how will he fill his days by becoming an international renter celebrity? Well, I imagine he could think of worse things to do. It's also worth adding, of course, that I don't suppose there are a lot of mainstream political figures who want to stand on a stage with Donald Trump, but Donald Trump needs a few. So it didn't do him any harm to have one. Now, I'm just going to throw a stick in the works here, Gideon, because a lot of people do like to make connections between Trump and Brexit. But having been to the Republican convention in Cleveland, I found there are some quite big differences there. And one of the differences was actually highlighted by Mr. Farage, who appeared at a lunch at Cleveland and said, you know, I'm not here to get involved. I'm not here to tell you how to vote, because that's what Barack Obama tried to do in the Brexit campaign. And he said, actually, maybe it's a social difference, but there's some things Donald Trump said that make me uncomfortable. So we can assume that might be the Muslim ban or things he said about women or what have you. But Donald Trump is about celebrity. It's about the glitty showbiz, this make America great again thing. Whereas Euroscepticism, which Nigel Farage has become the pinnacle of, is an intellectually coherent idea in the UK. Whereas there's nothing. It, is, no- it, it is, but yeah. there's nothing coherent about what Trump says. Yeah, no, I mean, I think the thing is that you're right. Euroscepticism was an intellectual movement which developed over 20 years. However, it's a very broad movement. And I think Farage is at the far right end of it. As you point out, even he was a little bit uncomfortable with the, I think, overt racism of the Trump campaign. However, he has decided to stop being uncomfortable about it and to basically get in bed with Donald Trump. And indeed, I think Farage is somebody I've known for a while has a record of this. I remember years ago meeting him in Strasbourg in the early 2000s when he said, look, I can see the potential of immigration as an issue for my party, but I'm not sure how to use it. He now, maybe to align with Le Pen, didn't yeah, he? Yeah, and he was initially at least claiming to be wary of using race, immigration as issues. Eventually, he decided just to go with it. And maybe we're seeing the same process where he initially says, mm, not so sure about Trump, and then he thinks, oh, what the hell, I'll go with it. But what's interesting is that other people in the broad leave campaign, like Daniel Hannan, for example, reacted very nervously when Trump said, I'm Mr. Brexit, and tweeted, oh, no, you're not, you know, you're a racist, we've got nothing to do with you. I think the other point is that when you talk about intellectual coherence is that one needs to look at it in both the positive and the negative side of the argument. While it's much harder to build immediate parallels between what Nigel Farage wants to see and what Donald Trump wants to see. It's much easier to see parallels between their critique of what's wrong with the world and the things that are bad. And it's very much about elites, establishments, lying to people, people who feel left behind, people who think the world was better several decades ago and would like to get back to it. And that's where I think there is quite a close symmetry. There's an interesting connection between the two of this website called Breitbart. Now, Breitbart is a right-wing news website that sort of came out of the world of the Drudge Report about a decade ago. And a chap who now runs Breitbart called Steve Bannon is now Donald Trump's campaign manager that Trump shook up his campaign and put Bannon in charge. And Bannon and set up Breitbart London a few years ago and hired Nigel Farage as a columnist. So there's a direct link between those two there. So you can sort of see that that, again, is a way that connects these two movements together. The question is, why did Farage do it? 
I think there is a fundamental point that Farage directly mentioned in his speech when he said that the key to their success in Britain was mobilising a 15 to 20% of the electorate who do not normally turn out. The people who say a plague on all your houses towards all politicians, regard them all with equal contempt. We got these people out. And if you look at the demographics of the US election, it is quite hard to see at the moment how Trump can win this on the usual turnout. Therefore, the key to his success is the key to Farage's success, which is mobilising those people who don't normally come. And let's just suppose for a moment that Trump is successful. Then all of a sudden, he's a guru who helps show populist leaders how to win. And he's close to the US president. So there's not a lot of downside for Farage and there's a potential upside. Absolutely. I think that must be his calculation that... It's certainly possible, more possible, I think, than many people would like to acknowledge here in the UK. And maybe it's because I've lived through Brexit. I'm attuned to the idea that this might be the year of massive populist upsets. So if you're Farage, what's the downside? The people who hate him in Britain hate him already. And he may now emerge as this figure who is the figure in Britain with the closest relationship of anyone in the UK with the incoming US president. He's obviously already a bogeyman for the left in the UK, but he's now becoming a bogeyman for the left in the US. That Hillary Clinton gave a speech on this alt-right, which is this new cultural libertarianism, I believe it's described, movement on the far right of American politics. And she singled out Nigel Farage as an example. And it was quite bizarre to watch Hillary Clinton at a rally talking about Nigel Farage. Yeah, who says Britain doesn't count anymore, eh? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it was quite strange. It also becomes slightly bizarre because some of these cultural readers crosses just don't work and they jar a bit. So there are misunderstandings on both sides, maybe deliberately obscuring things. I thought when Farage said, oh, well, people here regard Washington just the way we regard Brussels, it was a slightly odd thing to say because, as I understood it, the Eurosceptic's complaint about Brussels was that it was a foreign capital imposing laws on Britain. Uh, now, nobody, whatever you say about Washington, it's not actually in another country. But nonetheless, I suppose that populist thing is the connection. I do think one of the difficult calculations that Trump ought to be making is the extent to which it suits his purposes for the election to be about him. I think if I was advising Trump on strategy, I would be saying every day that we're focused on you is a day we're not winning the argument. You want to focus the argument on Hillary and the establishment. So every day that Hillary is able to dominate the news agenda with proof of how extreme you are is a day that isn't serving your campaign. That's why Hillary did it anyway. I think her motivation was clear. Yes, absolutely. But the question is now, of course, if we just look back at UKIP in the UK, what happens next for them? Because Mr. Foz is gone. He might come back again. There's a very good chance of that since he's quit several times in the past. But what's going to happen to all the I people voted for UKIP? really, really interesting. He's been leader three times. Normally you get to keep someone after you win them three times. But he's gone again. He was clearly their biggest electoral asset by a country mile. Then the next biggest asset was a unity of purpose, which was opposition to the European Union. He's gone, that's gone or going. It's very difficult to see what binds UKIP together. And I think that's doubly interesting because there has been an assumption that Corbynism in the Labour Party will see lots of working class Labour votes drifting to UKIP. But if UKIP drifts towards irrelevance or has a leader who doesn't cut it, that's not as guaranteed as people think. Yeah, there's a huge opportunity, it seems to me, for UKIP, but they look like they may be about to blow it. They've made this breakthrough with the referendum. They've clearly got an agenda which appeals to the left-behind white working class, particularly in the north. But if they fall apart, if they have an unknown as their leader, then those voters may not come their way. Although I would have thought, actually, if Owen Smith becomes 
leader of the Labour Party. I mean, it seems unlikely, but it would be greeted with hallelujahs by all the people I know, sort of London lefties. But I think it would be a real problem in the North to have somebody who's outwardly wants to reverse the EU referendum. What I think is very interesting, having followed UKIP for about four years or so, is that I've always heard this is UKIP's breakthrough. This is the moment they're going to change the shape of British politics. And they never do, because as well as having that unity of purpose and leadership, they are also very incompetent. They're also very bad campaigners and they're bad messages as well. And to be fair... The electoral system is not weighted in their advance, which I think is a pretty important Absolutely. Point. In terms of the North and trying mm. to capture parliamentary seats, you know, Nigel Farage tried eight times to become an MP and never quite made it. Could I, I mean, sorry, we don't want to all speak up for UKIP, but it was extraordinary. How many millions of votes? Four million votes. And they got one MP. Yeah. Yeah. But my, the electoral system. Look, you take a speed limit, a 30 mile an hour speed limit, you can't moan that you can't drive faster than it. It's just the fact of life that you win seats by focusing resources. And UKIP should, in my view, have won four to five parliamentary seats at the last election and they didn't because they ran bad campaigns their candidates were not the best and if the party can figure out that then they could seize on the north it's possible but i do think the other point we should look for with you again if i was thinking about them from their point of view and strategically what you need is betrayal theory and this takes you back to trump in a way that actually the best way for them to run now is the establishment is selling us out you voted for brexit they're taking it away from you and you need a leader who can be plausible on that and of course that's roughly what nicola sturgeon did in Scotland when she became leader is you voted for something, you were promised something, the establishment's taking it away from you. That's a plausible selling message for a few years. So if they get a leader who can sell that argument, they're still in business. Yeah, yeah this is the one role left apart from trying to clean up the ex-Labour working class vote, Gideon, is to say, Theresa May, she's not going for hard Brexit or yeah. what have you and just say, you know, you didn't get what you want, vote UKIP and we'll try and fix yeah, it we'll all. really something. teach them a lesson this time. And I think the other thing, tying together the bits of this conversation, is I think politics in Europe will be hugely influenced by what happens in the US election. If Trump goes down in flames, then maybe this popular surge that's that you're it. seeing... In Europe, well, I don't know whether that's it, but it certainly won't be encouraged. On the other hand, if, God forbid, Trump actually wins, then I think characters like Nigel Farage, Gert Wilders in Holland, the various populist parties in Eastern Europe will all get a huge boost of credibility because people will say, well, you know, they've said you can't vote for Marine Le Pen in France or Nigel Farage on the extremes. Well, now, you know, look at America. And now on to Joseph Chamberlain, who has become the political lodestar of the moment. Ever since Theresa May became Prime Minister a few months ago, there's been much examination of the thoughts and words of her Chief of Staff, Nick Timothy. Mr Timothy is a biographer of Radical Joe, as he was known, and even though he was never officially a member of the Conservative Party, Mr Timothy says there are lessons for politics of today. So what are those lessons? Charles Works, I was wondering if you could just begin by telling us a bit on who Joe was and why we're suddenly all caring about what he had to say. To answer your second question first, one of the reasons we're all caring about what he had to say is that we don't know very much about what Theresa May thinks about economics. She's had a couple of big speeches, one of them in 2013, one of them just as the leadership campaign was starting and ending and she was being anointed. And we don't really know. She just put down placeholders saying things like, I believe in industrial strategy and I don't think the economy hands out a fair deal. So the fact that she has this very influential advisor who spent a lot of time learning about Radical Joe and uh, comes from Birmingham, like Joe Chamberlain, is very important. So who was he? He was a very important late Victorian statesman. He was officially a liberal unionist through most of that time, but he worked with the Salisbury government. He worked as president of the Board of Trade and the colonial secretary. And colonialism was a very important thread for him. He was, in the end, 
an outright imperialist who orientated all of his policies towards that and his economic policies in particular, although they were very progressive, he fought for things like old age pensions, right for workers, even something that sounds very like help to buy, loans for buying new houses. He was ultimately most interested in tariff reform in order to bind the empire together into one trading block. And this is the area of his economic thinking that is most intriguing as we leave the European Union and try and shape a new settlement. And also, in my view, most worrying because it's deeply anachronistic to try to use restraints on trade to try and make the economy you want. And if that is what Theresa May's industrial strategy is to be, and I emphasise that's a big if because we really don't know, there are worrying signs too. Because I suppose, Alan Beattie, if we look back to the um, the tariff reform and the battles over that in the late 1800s, it's essentially the same arguments about globalisation that we're facing today, which has led a lot to the debates about the EU and Brexit. Absolutely. I mean, the first era of globalisation, the golden era, golden age, or sometimes called it, from 1870 on, saw you know these huge movements of capital and goods, and people, actually, movements of people even bigger than we see now. And commensurate concern about the strains that that put on people, huge debate about the gold standard and whether or not wages and the incomes of ordinary people were being made to take the brunt of changes in order to further the interests of financial sectors and so forth. It's absolutely right that it's quite similar to what we're seeing now. Now, the way that policy actually evolved was in two directions. One was quite a positive one, which was to create welfare states, to soften the blow, essentially to enable people to compete without being thrown around by the vagaries of the market. And the other was this retrograde step of restraints on trade. Now, a lot of the first bit of that has been done about the welfare states and so forth. Now, if Theresa May wanted to go down that route, then, of course, she could reverse some of the cuts of the Cameron administration. But going down the other way, actually reversing on free trade and genuinely going down the way of protectionism would be a much more radical step and I think a retrograde step and I'm not really sure they could actually get the support for it. And even if actual tariffs are not on the table and of course all of the different sides of the Brexit debate were arguing about who is going to get the best benefit of free trade so we don't know that Theresa May likes tariffs itself. Her attitude to immigration has incredibly strong echoes with Joseph Chamberlain who when he was attacking free trade of goods also said things like you are suffering from the unrestricted immigration of the people who make these goods and the evils of immigration has in- increased during recent years. Now, you could almost take word for word some quotes from Theresa May's speeches in the same way. And she faces a choice. Do we stay with access to the single market and all the advantages of free trade? Or do we insist on control over the free movement of people? And if she makes that her number one priority, we are going to take a step away from the global economy that we liberals think is the foundation of prosperity. And one thing that was also very interesting about Radical Joe Giles is that he was obviously a strong unionist as well. And I think Theresa May has that on her first speech outside Downing Street, which is her only major speech since she became prime minister at at the beginning of the summer, was focusing on Scotland, Northern Ireland and what have you, which has all been thrown under question by Brexit. And one of the reasons that Chamberlain woke away the Liberal Unionist was over Irish home rule. So again, there's echoes of that same sentiment there. Yes, very much so. And uh, Theresa May has got a real no-nonce approach to that. She thinks unionism is an absolutely unquestioned virtue of her party. And more positively, because we're dealing with some areas here that are slightly anachronistic, Joseph Chamberlain was 
Finally, a really strong municipal politician. He's still incredibly strongly associated with the city of Birmingham. Since that time, the whole of local politics in the UK has withered or become seen as corrupt, and that municipal pride is gone. So if I was to choose one really positive thing she might be able to take, it's to restore that kind of municipal control over your fate that Joseph Chamberlain came to epitomise. Alan, there was a brief period when uh, Chamberlain was mayor of Birmingham, which was not an elected position. I think he was elected council at the time and he was known for nationalizing the uh, water and gas supplies which was again to spread them and this became known as municipal socialism it empowered the local Birmingham government in a way that I think a lot of local authorities don't have now but we have heard from Theresa May that she might be pulling back on this idea of empowering local government through elected mayors yeah, the interesting thing about the devolution is that the enthusiasm for it seems very different in different parts of the country, as we've seen in the past when there were referenda for regional assemblies and they failed and so forth. And although some real powers have been devolved to Manchester, I think it seems to be quite difficult to find another area that's a unitary whole and works civil thing in the way that Manchester does. So it's not clear to me what strategy there is there and what possibilities that we haven't already seen and the extent to which people really genuinely desire this kind of devolution. Because what you've seen over the past few decades is policy go round and round in circles. That First of all, someone says, we should have devolution. Then you have devolution. Then people say, oh, now we've got a postcode lottery or we've got unequal provision of services throughout the country. And then it goes back to centralisation again and so forth. So what happened in Chamberlain's time was that that infrastructure that was there was inadequate, basically, to deal with the Industrial Revolution. It didn't protect people's health, say. There wasn't enough infrastructure even to facilitate industrialization. So the gas and water socialism was a sort of response to that. I don't think you can really say that there's that huge lack of public services in the same way. So although Britain is a very centralized country, it's not clear to me what huge demand there is for devolution and what enormous difference it would make in practice. From what I understand it, Giles, the point of devolution was to try and move decision-making closer to accountability because the idea is you get local governments who complain that Whitehall's cutting our funding, yeah. Whitehall's responsible, and as you know, most voters go straight to their MPs yeah. who can do nothing about it. So the whole devolution agenda that George Osborne was pushing through the Northern Powers and elected mayors was to try and bring all that closer to the people, but there is no evidence, as Alan said, that people care or even want this. and there's a real chicken and egg problem there. Until people expect to hold responsible their local politicians, they're not going to go to them. The local politicians are going to feel that they're only having responsibilities without power in any case. The postcode lottery point that Alan makes is incredibly important because the difference in prosperity between London, where it costs half a million pounds for a flat, and parts of the north where it's sort of 30 or 40,000 pounds for a house are incredible and that feeds through to your tax and what you can then do with it. To be optimistic about it, the man in charge of a lot of this now is going to be Greg Clark. And Greg Clark, who was at local government and who pushed the city's agenda, he once put it very well to me, which is he wants to turn on the radio sometime and find that something has happened in some area like Birmingham and it's the Birmingham politician, not the cabinet member who's explaining it and if you get that sense of responsibility you then have local politicians taking pro-growth decisions because they want to keep that sort of activity in their place like Joseph Chamberlain might have and then suddenly you get some sort of real municipal ball rolling but it's a tall order and it takes political courage and I think Alan's right it's going to be very difficult for people to get past the postcode lottery first. 
One thing, finally, Alan, that's quite interesting is that Joseph Chamberlain's Birmingham heartland buoyed the rest of his political career. He always had that vote locked in. A lot of people in the Labour Party are now hoping to try and repeat that similar thing with Andy Burnham in Manchester, Steve Rotherham in Liverpool and other powerful leaders to try and get power bases away from London in a way that hasn't really existed. So that could be something that could come out of this the way that Radical Joe had back in the 1800s. I think in theory it could, but in practice, no. Those tend to be sort of Labour voting cities anyway. It's not as if you're suddenly scooping up huge numbers of votes to Labour that weren't already there. As I say, it remains to be seen how much power genuinely is devolved and can genuinely be wielded, particularly outside Manchester. And Britain remains a very centralised country and a very parliamentary country. And the fact that there's somebody in Manchester waving the chain of office in the mace or whatever and saying, look, I'm the mayor of Manchester, everyone's got to listen to me. The reality is that until there's some fundamental change between the centre and the periphery in terms of power, and by its nature that has to be affected by the centre in the first place, then I don't quite see how you end up with these regional barons. I can imagine them being powerful where they are, but these regional barons somehow being able to project that power onto a national stage. I think that is years, decades down the line. Yeah, the Treasury needs to change its attitude. The Treasury likes to take in the money and then give it out again. Even where business rates are gathered locally, they then go into the Treasury and it doles them out again. The Treasury needs to commit to allow local money to stay local. And that means rich areas getting richer at first, at least. And not many politicians like to face that. And that's it for this week's episode of FT Politics. Thank you very much to our guests for joining. We'll be back next week with another instalment. And thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, you might enjoy the FT Money Show, the FT's most popular weekly podcast presented by me, Claire Barrett, the editor of FT Money. The Money Show comes out every Wednesday and you can download it at ft.com slash podcasts. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.